The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to episode 32 of the Cinematography Podcast which might be the only podcast in your current feed that is not about a serial killer. (laughs) Is that what what is in your feed right now? All serial killers? I have stumbled across in the last month three amazing serial killer podcasts. Wow. And and I'm I'm glued to all of them, but I was like, wait a minute. I remember when my listening habits included no serial killers. And and now you are addicted. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like a like a regular Clarice Starling. <laughs> well, well, Ben, maybe you'll have to tell us about that in your short end. I might, I might, I might drop it. So uh, let's get right to it because we have a kick-ass interview that you conducted. That's true. It's with <clears throat> Academy Award nominee Robbie Ryan. <clears throat> Academy <laughs> Award winning. You know, the last time and we not had... winning a nominee. So you know, the awards yeah. haven't happened yet. Yeah. So, so you know. And what did he? What was he nominated for? The favorite. Awesome. That is a beautiful looking movie. Also, some of the craziest, zaniest, like fisheyeiest lenses I have seen. Well, you know, you don't usually associate that with a period drama, but there's sort of transitionary effects. And I, I will tell you, a lot of people make make comment to that. But if you leave out the four or five fisheye shots, which I think people might find really distracting, uh, it's beautiful. It's a it's a it's an incredible movie. I think it's beautiful if I include the fisheye shots. Well, okay, I'm saying, but you immediately brought up the fisheyes, and I immediately got defensive about this because, like, uh, just because people aren't used to seeing it in this type of movie doesn't mean it shouldn't be there. It it has a certain effect. No, no. I mean, I, I sort of feel like not since Barry Lyndon have I seen a, a a period drama that was so surprising to me in the way that it used uh, the lenses and the and the look of the film. Here's our interview with Robbie Ryan. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hey, Robbie Ryan, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Glad to be here. So, Robbie, I, I want you to take this the right way. <laughs> I'm going to start start with this. You are a cinematographer's cinematographer. What? I can't tell you how many people I talk to who say, like, you know whose work I really like? I really like other cinematographers who tell me Robbie Ryan. So I, wow. I, I, I did not know that. Yes. Uh, that's, it's that's m- very more, humbling. You know, m- more than one. So, wow. so no, it's, it's, it's really good. And I feel like you're at a really interesting spot in your career right now because I've kind of been tracking you for a while as I've been, mm. been hearing uh, who you are and what, and the stuff that you've been doing. And I think you're kind of on a precipice. I think you're actually like about to like really fall off. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Cliff edge. I, I'd like to think that you're actually, your, uh, your, your star is way on the rise. I'd say that you're, 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 you're coming up in this world and uh, let me ask you this current movie is this the largest budget movie you've worked on so far I don't know what the, most of the time I don't get told what the budgets are so I kind of like I only know when there's nobody so yeah I think that's easy to I see. think this it's film easy. probably you know, it wasn't a very big budget film mm. actually no it was not a lot of money if I remember because they were really kind of saying they didn't yeah. have enough here or there you had Emma Stone you had like some, some I know but a lot of actors nowadays they do the films that you know they, they want to do and they'll take you know their their sort of pay cut to to get in, and Yorgos's films, I think, kind of do attract actors to want to try and work with them. So it wasn't 
wasn't a lot of money that film. I think I've worked on bigger. Okay. Well, well, I, I guess I, I color me. And what you say it's ironic because it used to be the low budget films years ago mm-hmm. have more money than the mid sized films have now. Oh, that's really <laughs> that, that that's really true. The world is yeah. the world's changing. I remember doing point. a horror film and we were like thought we were low budget. It was three point five million back in nineteen uh, in two thousand four. That was low budget. <laughs> I know, but that no no. <laughs> to then. me now, I'm doing mid sized films that are not a million miles away from. It's not dollars. That's pounds, euros. Mm, mm. Anyway. Uh, well, I don't like as I said I don't really get privy to the the budgets I go how much is this one then and they're like blah, blah, blah. but no this one was definitely not the biggest yeah. and uh, okay, it's well. good because it does well, have but, a, a look about it that maybe feels a bit bigger yeah you, you, well, you certainly crafted a look that made it look like it had money and it's got what Fox behind it Fox Searchlight Fox or? Searchlight are way so. behind it and it's uh, interesting to see how that machine works Yeah, I've never been on a film where I've done so much promotion I'm like <laughs> uh, well, um, you you certainly have won a bunch of awards, uh, and or in movies you've worked on have won a bunch of awards. I think probably the movie that uh, our audience may have seen of yours uh, that they are most familiar with is American Honey. So, all right, not uh, many people did see that film. I don't think. Well, you know, I'd like to think that <laughs> not our, enough went to it. Our audience is a little bit above me. Good. So, so we, well, you know, okay, yeah, so. no, because it was it was uh, a bit of a you know, disappointment in the. Sales bracket, unfortunately, but you know it's it's yeah. the kind of film that's critical success. Can yeah, can, yeah, yeah awards yeah. it can. It's like this very is, true, very I mean, true. I mean, no, no, no. I I I like the film a lot as well, but it's um, it's one of those. It seems to be one of the types of films I make quite a bit where everything's kind of potentially there, but it doesn't seem to take off or whatever. And that's what's interesting about this film, The Favorite, is because it's actually beginning to. I can see the momentum working, and you're like, wow, it's a whole different environment you know who knows but like the main thing is people like the film and I think that's that's and what you want as a filmmaker is people to see your film it's really hard to get people to see films so you know when there's a bit of momentum it's really nice because people are all going to it and then they get in contact and say they've seen it and they liked it and that's great I, I that I think that's definitely the goal. I think every filmmaker out there says they just want their work to be seen, yeah. uh, and it's wonderful they can make a buck at the same time too. But uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it it is that's the business part of show business, which actually um, you can't have one without the other. It's well, there's the, some people who are good at it and that, they know true. how to do it, and then there's other people who are a bit more like they've stumbled along. I think I might be the latter. <laughs> well, you're in good company because I think that about. One hundred percent of the people feel that until their entire fortunes and fates change, and right. then, then yeah. they become. So let me tell you, there is a uh, a really huge cinematographer we had on the on the show earlier in the year, and I don't know if they want the story told, but another cinematographer who we had on told me that they were got approached at a camera rental's house not that long ago, saying like, "Hey, any sort of work, I'm doing this lousy reality stuff. Anything you can do, I, I could really help." And now that person is literally like shooting the biggest movies in, in the world. So oh, it's right. like it, it changes. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Cha- it, it is the overnight success story 30 years in the making. So it's for sure. Well, no, and I think with filmmaking, it, you know, you can be in the wilderness for a long time and come out. And it, it's it, it's quite a, a nice business for that where you can, you know, be away and then return and they still welcome you. You know, it's it's good. You are prolific. Uh, anyone who goes to your IMDb will see that you've got nearly 100 DP credits yeah, on there. but there's a lot of small films in that. But you know what? That, you don't. You hear you are self-deprecating as if there's something wrong with short films. There's nothing. No, no, wrong there's not. That. But there's, yeah, I do a lot of short films. Right? But you, you know what? I, I think that that's pretty great though too. And you know, I, I've I talked I talked to a lot of DPs, and 
the short film offers slow down quite a bit after you're doing a bunch of big stuff. People think you're not interested or you don't want them anymore. And yeah. I think a lot of people actually really do. I think it's awesome that you've been taking them, that you've been doing Yeah, them, no, so. I've got a good bunch of friends who all sort of, you know, once, once people are aware that you do that sort of thing, then you still get the calls, which is great. So I, my one caveat recently was that I'd only do them on film if, if I was going to do them at all and I sort of thought that might knock it on the head for a while but people seem to be wanting to do shorts on film now so I'm okay with that I'm happy to do that and makes me want to do it then so uh, yeah it's it's um, it's a really unique art form of its own short films they they are unique to being a way of storytelling that I don't think it gets enough credit because people always go oh, he does a short so you can get to do a, f- a bigger film you know or whatever and uh, it's not always the case it's like some people just like to make shorts you can't. You don't have a lot of margin for error with the shorts, too. And it's a you, lot of pressure, but it's always a labor of love most of the time. People are putting a lot of effort and their own sort of investment into shorts because they, nobody else is going to give it to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like there used to be schemes for making shorts, and there still is a little bit, but it's not, you know, it's not that apparent. And it's it's you know with the new technology, a lot of people are wanting to tell stories and make shorts, and you know, it's 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 only good. It's all good stuff. How did you get into this? What, what, my what story. Gave the, yeah, yeah. What, gave, what gave you the bug? Uh, well, I, my father was a man who never really, they, back in my dad's age, they all were mad into cine cameras and Super 8s and stuff like that. And I think they were knocking around our house. And, you know, it wasn't that he was a filmmaker at all, but he, he, he probably had those things knock, left around. And he worked in microfilm, taking pictures of newspapers for archival uh, for the when you would go to a, a library, you'd go to one of those machines, and it was like the microfilm was there. Microfish, yeah, and, oh yeah. You know, made a good earning out of that until computers came along. <laughs> sort of, that was sort of knocked it for six. But yeah, so what you do there is you have these massive cameras, the big rostrum cameras, and I remember going in as a kid and like looking at these things. They're like, what the hell? It's like a spaceship. It's like the USS Enterprise, the, this massive big rocket uh, camera. So I was really, maybe that had something to do with it, but I, I just, me and my cousins were making films from a very early age, like 14, 13, and we'd film a Super 8 and then we'd send it off to Germany and we'd get it back and, you know, we'd be really excited about what our film was. It was like a lot of story, full stories in one role and, you know, in edit camera or in camera editing. So, yeah, we, we, got, we got the bug big time doing that and then we were like really excited when we got um, the first Sony or Canon video camera video 8 camera like wow we could do longer films now and you know just it was a great environment to grow up in because it wasn't like it is now where there's everybody's making music videos on their phone but from the age of 7 you know what I mean so it's kind of we were sort of a little bit like uh, an, an anomaly to our parents going what are, you, what are you guys doing are you guys doing that again you know so it was always a bit like we felt we were the only ones doing it obviously loads of people uh, other places were doing it as well but I felt that that was the beginning of it all. And then I went to film school in a place called Dunleary College of Art and Design in Dublin. And that was a brilliant place to meet like-minded kind of students and filmmaking such a collaborative sort of process. That was essential for me to kind of, I really realised these people were going to be great friends and we'll make films together. And it was, that's what we did. We, We were in a really good film school. And uh, I'm still friends with a lot of those people. And, you know, it was the first time I'd found my tribe, you know. 
Oh yeah, your your people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you still work with those people today too? Do you have I do. Yeah, there? one of them's uh, make sure I make short films with him. Still, he can't get any finance for a feature, <laughs> and he's just he's he's a writer and he kind of makes his own. Um, he, he does it all. He's the most independent filmmaker I know. His name's Simon O'Neill, and he uh, he just makes things himself, then sends them to festivals, and he's done really well out of it. But the you know the only way to get funding in Ireland for a film is through this uh, Screen Ireland they're calling it. it used to be called the film uh, film board, and he's never got any money out of them, <laughs> so he's kind of like struggling artist. Well, there's there's probably some private equity. There's probably some other ways he. Could oh yeah, yeah, he's, he's. But it's yeah, it, it's work. It's it's all it's work to get to get money. It's it work, is. It's it work is. To it is. Do, no, do absolutely, you're right. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of festivals, uh, we're at a really cool one right now. We're we at, are. We're at Camera Image. I've been calling it Image because that's how someone told me, and then I got corrected today. No, in Camera Image. It's well, ca- no, it goes Camera Image as well. I, I know. It was like I, I it talked a couple of people. You say in there, it, it does. No, it's it's Camera Image. So I was like, oh, okay. The the magic is destroyed. No, it's actually Energia Camera Image. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, make sure you get that energy <laughs> in there because it's it's sponsored. It's very, 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 very <laughs> lovely very, people of energy. Yeah, making this all making this all possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is not your first time here. I know you had a short or a music video or some other stuff that was nominated yeah, here. Yeah. So you've been to Poland before. What what do you make of this whole experience? This festival is brilliant. Yeah, I know uh, it's it is a very unusual kind of environment because you've got. You know, there's a there's a little bit of a star thing goes on with DPs sometimes, and it's a bit misplaced, I think. And it's just the nat- nature of the whole business, I guess. Like after you're actors, you want to sort of like celebrate the other sort of sides of it, like the directors and the DPs. And this is this festival brings all these people together, and you're like, oh wow, this guy's just shot like first man. He's you know really interesting cinematographer, and I'm just stood here talking to him. You know, it's oh. like, and it's like you just sort of. Very, very friendly environment and very social environment. So it's it's a really, you know, DPs flock to this because it got that that um, reputation. Yeah, uh, it also has the reputation of being kind of a party. And uh, I de- definitely know that, like, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> that it, if you if you want to see DPs let their hair down, I mean, this is this is kind of the, the place to do that. So. Well, this this festival this time is brilliant because there's a DP Nick Sadler who's he's organized a, a, a oh, DJ I, night every night. I swore in Mosk. I swore that I was not going to promote Nick during this. I Sorry. Swore. <laughs> He's done a great thing though because no, he's Nick's, Nick's coming on the podcast. Too, he's, so he basically <laughs> has set up a, a perfect night out for all of the DPs because the, the the official nightclub jet lag yeah is a little bit jet lag anemic. <laughs> so you kind of um, he's I was DJing last night. I was the first oh, one. Yeah. Oh, congratulations! And, uh, hey, and, and you're brilliant. An illustrious company. I know Seamus McGarvey is supposed to do a same. Seamus, Ma- yeah. Maddie Libatique is going to yeah, do a Yeah, I think DJ he might be DJing set, tonight. So. Yeah, you know, so, yeah. I started the ball rolling. So uh, well, well, uh, well done. Yeah, well it was done. a great Good. night. I really yeah. enjoyed myself. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be at something else tonight but yesterday I had two hours of sleep so there was no way I was going to let Nick convince me to get into any debauchery but uh, but Come now, tonight, then. yeah but might be tonight <laughs> <laughs> now that I've had a night's sleep it's good man well it's more than I've had <laughs> yeah, yeah it's quite uh, a debauched festival to be honest alright so uh, so I'm going to throw this over to you um, what would you like to talk about uh, I mean yeah the, how many interv- how many interviewers give the interviewee the, the choice of where this conversation can go we only have a couple minutes yeah, left yeah I don't so really I, know I'm, so, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm good at answering questions oh okay uh, I threw you on the spot now you weren't weren't prepared so uh, uh, I, I what would you like me to talk about oh, okay okay. how about this um, I'm going to steal my co-host question which he always asks is 
he believes that DPs come from two schools of thought. One is, and you can reject this, you don't have to agree with this you know, hypothesis at all, but DPs either come from the lighting school and they go, okay, I want to create a world, put the light in it, and then find the frame. Yeah. Or they come from the framing world and say, I want to find the frame and then light into that frame and figure out the story from that way. Do you have a, a, a bias one way or the other? Um, I think mainly, first of all, I would say lights are your friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can really help you out, you know, but I... I'm a, you know, definitely a fan of what would look like a natural light scenario and whatever means you get to that is important. And I think, ironically, the, the best way of getting into good natural light is shooting it for what it is. So I've kind of like, yeah, I've, I've, I suppose the, the, the look of something like The Favourite, people are like sort of surprised about it being, you know, natural light. But like I, the story there was Rachel Weisz is there. We did this walk around the, the location at the beginning of the film to sort of show the actors the, the environment. And she was walking around and she's going, oh yeah, this is this is lovely in here. How are you going to light it to Jorgis? And he goes, what are you talking about? It's lit. <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, it's, so, it's sort of like kind of, you know, just getting a mindset of not, trying to use too much lights and then you realise that by doing that you're actually impo- or instilling a look that is actually really great and honest it's an honest thing I think when you start lighting stuff a bit it sometimes gets it, 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 if it draws attention to itself then it's maybe not doing the right thing Yeah, yeah. and um, I think the ad- advent of really high ASA digital being very good at low light means a lot of people aren't using lights so much anymore. But then lighting has changed really dramatically as well with all these new LED lights that are phenomenal. And like the the guys, I'm going to have a very bad promotion here for DMG Lumiere. <laughs> They're amazing because they've, they've got this thing called a mix now, which is like completely different colours. I know the Sky Panel does it, but they've been affiliated with Roscoe, who um, can make just basically every gel that you would have, they have the, the exact colour that would emanate from that, which is crazy to think of like even two years ago it was like wow have you seen these LED lights they're bicolor it's great <laughs> you're like now it's have you seen that it's just the progression of that is so fast it's great and I, I saw I, I absolutely love shooting in natural light and like wood but I'm also a fan of saying light to your friends <laughs> We 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 spent six weeks waiting for the perfect day to shoot this exact shot right now. Yeah, but but the reality well, we did a favor. <laughs> we were like could have been a nightmare because the location was a dark enough place, and if the weather was dark, we were like in trouble. But the weather was really sunny, so we got lucky as far as having a nice ambience that was you know getting an exposure. All right, where was your location? It was in a place called Hatfield House in the north of London, and we shot on film, which is a big advocate like you know I think that's a big production value plus when you're doing natural light because it really loves natural light film I think skin tones are really beautiful on film so it kind of and that environment was very you know soft ambient light coming in against like darker textures so you really made the actors stand out and it was it was really nice you, you just need enough of it yeah <laughs> so exactly exactly yeah if you're shooting film you, you just gotta gotta have enough and and I, I think this little resurgence that film is having right now because it did kind of disappear it felt like for about a moment there it was just like the, everything yeah, they had the, the defibrillator out didn't they yeah they really <laughs> did and now suddenly um, I go into rental houses every once in a while and it's like what someone's taking out a film camera these young guys are buying film cameras it's yeah. a, it's a way to differentiate themselves 60 mil is my favorite it's amazing like it, it's it's such a for the size of a sensor the size of your thumb it's absolutely gorgeous so I'm delighted that's got a resurgence uh, if you can find them really good 16 millimeter lenses they are the sharpest lenses 
basically anywhere. So they were, they were, they, yeah. were, they had to be for that format. So yeah, yeah, it's true. But, yeah. Uh, I see some people doing 16 with 35 lenses. It works. I've done, yeah. I've, I've just done a film in 16 and we, we use a lot longer lenses and you have to kind of use the, the 35 mil lenses. You don't have to, but they, they don't really have that great range in the longer lens on 16. Cook did something actually really clever. They're the only people I know to do this, but they made their very popular set of S4 lenses have a 16 millimeter mini set that went with it called the SK4s. Oh, so yeah. there's a 6.5, a 9, and a 12 that you use for your wide, and then you use all the S4s for the rest. And well, Ultraprime do that as well. This is like the the, no, no, the Ultraprime 16 is that's a full set. Well, it goes up to 25 but then you kind of they say the other ultra primes are the same lens it's a really weird complication no but I know what you mean yeah yeah oh, I guess you're right so maybe it does stop at 25 but oh, I thought there was a longer one I thought there was a there's 50. a 50 there's yeah. a 50 in the ultra prime set as well yeah. but they say that 50 is the same as a 50 and you're like oh, no there's no way don't get this <laughs> anyway so so here we've lost all of our audience now getting into the yeah, stuff, yeah, but, yeah. but I got but I gotta say that uh you know it's it I don't mind dipping in there a little bit when it's uh it's totally appropriate and it's part of We're our all conversation a bit techie, so. yeah, when, you know it's good fun to be a bit techie <laughs> it, it, it is all right so where can people find you online do you do the instagrams do you do the twitters do you do the any of that I don't stuff? do any social media do you have a reel up there no, I do, I do, but it's like from 2000, and it's as somebody was telling me yesterday. They looked at it. It's got, it's got quick times on it that only play audio now. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I love so, it. It's a cinematography website. It's only got, uh, you know, um, audio files. You're in really good company. I was talking to Robert McLaughlin about this, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't think my reel's been updated in about four or six years, or something, something like that." But yeah, you can find my old reel. It's on there. So uh, I think well, reels are very important for trying to get work. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy in a position where I think. I've got enough people that have been a network that I, I can, you know, they will come to me or somewhere. Like, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I, I, I find that the more you're hanging around in this business, the more people know about you. So that, That's right. That longevity is also a sign yeah. of success. And, and Robbie, I think that we're going to see a lot more from you real soon. Oh, well, I hope so. I hope so, Ilya. <laughs> Robbie Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And now, short ends. All right, so that was Robbie Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. And uh, we do at some point have a fantastic war story from Robbie that's going to go up with our new compilation episode of War Stories. I can't wait. I can't wait. And the, the most importantly, uh, Jason Wingrove can't wait for his war story that's like 17 years old to be... Uh, five years. Five years. Uh, finally uh, included. Hey, uh, Ben, it's short end time. Awesome. So, uh, so my short end, my my pet obsession of the week is Black Magic Da Vinci Resolve. Whoa. Yes. So, Black Magic Da Vinci Resolve, which used to be Da Vinci, the uh, gold standard in color correction. I remember paying uh, in in Orlando, Florida, in the nineties. Uh, I want to say it was three fifty an hour. Whoa. And that was with the intern driving for a Da Vinci suite. But that was you would it would be Telecine and Da Vinci. And I remember hearing the concepts of power windows and all this stuff. So Blackmagic, uh, who's been uh, releasing pretty awesome cameras and doing some interesting things for the last five, six years. They've owned Da Vinci for a while. And then I remember hearing like four years ago that they were going to put a nonlinear editing system into it. And I downloaded uh, a beta version of it and uh, messed around with it. I'm like, nope. And uh, my friend, uh, our our friend, and the guy who composes all the music for our show, Kay's Alatrakshi, he's been editing on it for years and, and has been telling me how awesome it is and keeps telling me about it, right? So uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Brendan Davis, brought me on to edit a project that he is producing. 
and they had said everything. He's also a podcaster too. He is. He is. Uh, he's, he he just finished up a podcast called Big Fish in the Middle Kingdom. He just did his last episode. Nice. And he has a new uh, a new podcast that he told me about. So that might be happening soon. Anyway, total side note. Yeah, yeah. But Brendan, Brendan brought me on, and the project had already been built in DaVinci Resolve. Hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot now. Uh, if you have, uh, if you're one of those people in the world who has a personal computer, I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if any of our listeners do. Probably not. Probably not. But uh, if you, if you know someone with a personal computer of some kind, Mac or PC, you can download a fully functioning version of Blackmagic DaVinci Resolve. If the fully paid version is only three hundred dollars, I believe, and also comes bundled with any of the cameras. So if you bu- ever buy a Blackmagic camera, you've got a f- you've got the highest end DaVinci Resolve. Now, it doesn't come with any of the hardware, which is an extra cost, but you can run it just fine without any of the hardware right off their website, down, did a straight download. I, it, because I'm a Mac person, I, I did it in the App Store and uh, opened up the project. And um, the short version of my story is I'm not editing this project in DaVinci Resolve. I moved it into Premiere because I'm comfortable in Premiere and I'm on some kind of a time schedule. However... I will say after having dicked around in Resolve for a couple of days, uh, it's, it does everything. And I think if I, if I knew someone who was starting out, if somebody had a brand new project that they uh, were looking to edit or they were looking to get into it, download DaVinci Resolve for free. It will, it will take your footage and, and uh, you can use most of the same kinds of filters. It's got Fairlight, which was a competitor to Pro Tools that Blackmagic purchased, uh, which is its own other story, but Fairlight is a fully functioning uh, audio sweetening suite. Audio post suite does everything. Um, and, uh, and and then when you're done, you have like the top of the line color corrector right there being uh, DaVinci Resolve, which is really what it's known for. Which means you don't have to take any of the stuff you've done and move it to another app and, and then come back to that to finish it or anything else. It's just right there. You're ready Correct. to go. Now, Premiere does that too. Premiere has a uh, great color correction now. They it, it took them a while, but they got their Lumetri color correction panel and stuff, and it's pretty functional and it does amazing stuff. And uh, you know, granted, Audition is a separate program, and you could bring in your and do your audio sweetening in Audition. Like there's there's pros and cons to all to all of these systems, but yes, Resolve is a finishing station, and to be able to start in the same thing you're going to finish in, even like this project. I'm working on proxies because they shot it on uh, the Alexa 65 at the full resolution. And they just gave me proxies to edit, which makes my life a little bit easier. And for everyone listening who doesn't know what a proxy is, it's a lightweight file. It's yeah. A, it's a small file. Yeah. So like the, well, you would know better, but the, what is the uh, Airy Alexa 65 shoot at? What's the resolution? Oh my God. Uh, it's a lot. 6K, I think. Yeah. I think that that's what it was. And yeah, so they just gave me like 1920 by 1080. So just HD, uh, regular old high def. Regular high def is now a proxy. Is yeah. now, <laughs> back in the day, it was like a really horrible thumbnail. Now it's high def. Um, but uh, yeah, and what's interesting to me about this is like I've watched the story of uh, the industry scramble to fill in the void when Final Cut Pro became Final Cut Pro 10. Obviously, some people love Final Cut Pro 10. And even though they're wrong, I'm not going to tell them that because it, it is a working uh, editing workstation that just happens to be inferior to everything else. <laughs> but you still have Avid. You still have Premiere. You have all these things and everyone scrambled to kind of fill fill this void. And Premiere has been kind of holding holding this down for a long time. Certainly for the independents. And yeah. it's really inexpensive if you get a subscription. I mean, yeah. there, there was. And uh, if you're a student, the subscription for the entire creative cloud is not that bad. 
but this is nothing, <laughs> and, literally. And, and that's got to be incredibly disruptive to Adobe's business model to have a, essentially a f- piece of free software that you can learn and n- basically maybe never even have to pay them a dime, well, and that disrupts many of sort of the key components of Adobe. Well, and, and to me, there's like a four-year clock starting on these things, and I don't know if the if, if the Resolve clock started this year or last year or the year before, but to me... The four-year clock goes something like this. Uh, an editing platform like this happened with Final Cut Pro. This happened with Premiere when Final Cut Pro 10 came out and ruined Final Cut Pro forever for everyone. I think it might be happening now with Resolve, which is students get their hands on whatever is the least expensive, highest quality tool. And uh, and about four years after that, the market is suddenly flooded with college students who are really good at this, and they are willing to be assistant editors and regular old editors, most of them don't really care what system they're editing, and they'll they'll learn it. You know, when when we were doing Alien Raiders, it's their job. Yeah, they'll, Aug, they'll Augie Hess, yeah. who had who had never edited in Final Cut Pro, learned Final Cut Pro in you know a couple of weeks or a weekend. I don't know how long it took him, but he was just as fast as I was, and I'd been using it for like ten years at that point. Hmm. Um, yeah. So to me, it'll be interesting in about two, three years, maybe we might start to see like a lot of Resolve jobs. And and it's not like Resolve is a non-player in this business anyway. People know that brand. I I was at CalArts in Pasadena literally yesterday and I got to take a tour of their uh, their cinema department. That school rejected me. Go on. Okay, great. (laughs) Well, they they knew something. Yeah, they sure did. (laughs) They said, okay, no way. This guy. Keep keep this guy out of this guy out. Not bad news. Bad news. Well, I'll tell you, I did meet some of the the students there there that are there now and uh they are starting to cut in davinci resolve that is actually something that that's happening the students are are using it in that way and i think that's probably what black magic hoped and i also think that like i don't understand how black magic makes money doing this because they're kind of giving away this thing that used to be like as the full version of it used to be like that much per hour just to get a a suite and you wouldn't you wouldn't the suite per hour um I don't know how they make money at this, but I do think one of the interesting things about this is uh, the DP mm-hmm. who I've worked with the most recently is a guy named George Foyt. He's a really great friend of mine. Uh, he shot all of 20 Seconds to Live. He shot a bunch of stuff that I've done. He, um, and George now is kind of a virtuoso of uh, of Resolve. And, and to me, for a lot of cinematographers, what that means is they get to kind of take control of the look of the image if they know how to grade it and you go back to them to grade it even if even if he's working on a job where he's not doing the grade he can speak the language of whoever is doing the color correction and he can author the image a little bit more specifically which is i think uh something that got taken away from uh, dps for a while you know when 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 color became very important but you know none of them would have owned their own freaking bay times change uh, while I'm talking about NLEs that tried to fill the void, I, I, I want to throw out a uh, a crass word to uh, Autodesk Smoke, which also tried to get into that world and kind of didn't really make a stir because the NLE was about the same quality as or lesser than what we already had. And then it was $2,500. I think it might have been even $3,500. And then you had Smoke, which is like state-of-the-art, high, high-end compositor. Compositor, meaning you're able to take uh, one type of digital file and another type of digital file and smash them together in a really yeah elegant way. I it was, I mean, it's the kind of thing that like you know you'd use on a Peter Jackson movie back in at that time, and it's not even that long ago. And it's like I think most editors are like, what am I going to do with this? Whereas most editors now have been forced against their will, against all the forces of nature, to learn how to color grade because 
you know, color grading and text and all that stuff has become part of their job and they, none of them wanted it and they all have to do it. And when I'm editing, I have to do all that stuff too. And, uh, and having a state of the, like knowing that you're working with one of the best grading systems that there is, you know, is awesome. Anyway, so that's a a really long winded short end, but uh, it was a short interview. So whatever. Okay. (laughs) All right. My short end this week is too funny to fail the life and death of the Dana Carvey show. Oh no. Yeah. So this is a documentary. It says 2017. It's new to me. It might be new to me because I just got Hulu after having it, not having it for a break, but it Hulu's algorithm promoted to me. It's like, Oh, you should, you should take a look at this. That show is awesome by the way. In its day. Uh, it only lasted like seven episodes. I know. And then it, I remember, but I remember it just being like edgy as all hell. It is. It's a incredibly subversive show. And, uh, it was in 1996 and they have fantastic interviews. It's directed by Josh Greenbaum, who also directed the, uh, becoming bond documentary. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but that was, uh, I did not. Yeah. It's a, uh, that that's also a good one. Um, but yes, Too Funny to Fail uh, has some great, great old footage, some great archive footage, uh, some BTS from the time of uh, the show. And it stars an incredibly unknown cast at that time. People who, I mean, were truly, truly nothing in the world of television, like uh, Steve Carell and uh, Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert, yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, the head writer was a guy, you know, people don't really know his name very much today, but uh, Louis C.K., where so, the name we shall not speak anymore. Exactly. So. He's, uh, he, he's he's he, he came out of nowhere, became a huge thing, and then went back to nowhere. And then went back. So, <laughs> but uh, it's a it's a really entertaining it's a really entertaining documentary, and it's um, gives you lots of moments of humor that you cannot believe was in prime time. It's well, like wasn't it like the show was bought by ABC before ABC was bought by Disney, and correct. so Disney had to produce that show. And it's the edgiest, darkest comedy show ever to be in primetime. Exactly. And it followed home improvement. (laughs) So, you know, here's this time slot on Thursdays. Uh, One of the, not trying to give anything away here, but one of the writers of Seinfeld loved the show so much. He was like, oh my God, agent, you got to get me over on that show. And didn't understand at all that the the show was bombing. But a couple episodes in was like, oh my God, I have to work with these people. This is incredible. And it's really amazing to watch it all unfold and they actually interview Bill Hader uh, in the documentary who talks about just being a fan at that time which is kind of remarkable just being a, he's like I was in high school and I, I saw this thing and oh my god it like blew my mind so uh, it is it's a it's a good watch it's a great documentary and uh, it's incredibly funny so awesome there, there's uh, the original Saturday Night Live uh, audition tape of Dana Carvey uh, doing the famous or now famous chopping broccoli uh, song, oh, you know, there's nothing more fun, and you can find a lot of these on YouTube. Go find any of the auditions of anyone who's who's ever been a superstar on SNL, because you watch them appear to bomb. Yes, they go up <laughs> and like nobody's <laughs> reacting from the audience. They're getting no laughs, and they're like working their asses off. And I don't care if it was you know Will Ferrell or you know Bill Hader, any of these any of these people who like are legends now. You, like you're going to watch them just crash and burn. It, it's kind of incredible, too, because you see uh, Stephen Carell or Steve Carell and S- Stephen Colbert basically be completely fearless and have nothing really behind them. But like the work they did here got them The Daily Show and really one sketch in particular get, made it happen for him. And you get to see that sketch, which fe- seems like, you know, just 
totally lowbrow, not a uh, not anything that you would think would be so remarkable. But no, it completely changed their careers. That's awesome. No, I definitely want to see that. That sounds amazing. So our next episode has Ilya interviewing one of my cinematography heroes, Maddie Lee Batik. And if you don't know who Maddie Lee Batik is, uh, shame on you. Shame on you. Go look him up. He's shot some of the best looking movies of the last 20 years. I just want to say this. If you were to come to my house, there's exactly one movie poster in my house on the wall. And it's a huge, like one of those giant movie posters, like a wall size. Mm. It is a poster of Pi which Maddie Libatik shot in, what was it, 98, or it came out in 98, for uh, a then completely unknown filmmaker named Darren Aronofsky, who maybe has, has gone on to do a thing or two as well. So uh, he's been well-recognized by his peers, including uh, ASC awards and uh, BAFTA award nominations, Academy Award nominations. This is his second this year for Star is Born. What his was his first for? Black Swan. Black Swan is, I would say... That Empire, my two favorite Darren Aronofsky films. They're, they're both great. And he's done some great stuff for other people. Of course, Inside Man for Spike Lee. I love Inside Man. That is probably my favorite Spike Lee film. Uh, and then he had a really good year this year, too, with also doing Venom, which is a massive Marvel, Marvel movie. And he also did Mother last year. And uh, he also did uh, Native Son, which was just at Sundance. At he's, he's one of those cinematographers who I think bounces... I won't say effortlessly because I don't know how much work he puts it's into probably this. Probably a shit ton of effort. Actually. But he bounces back and forth from like relentlessly individualistic, beautiful, visionary, in lower budget, often independent films to the biggest budget Marvel franchise films. Like he did, he shot, I think the first two Iron Man movies. Uh, Lee Batik is just, you know, he, to me, he's in, in what is not the longest career in Hollywood. He has done more than, uh, than most people will ever get to do. He's, he's just, uh, he, he, he's awesome. And again, I'm jealous as all fuck that you got to interview him and I didn't. Well, you know, he has been shooting since like the early mid nineties, that sort of time. So he's, he's, he's been around a while. He's been around a while, but like, he, I mean, I think Pi and, and the stuff he did for Aronofsky blew him up. And, uh, and then, you know, by the mid two thousands, he was already working on really big stuff for the he, studios. He'd already done a bunch of big stuff, uh, before I had become totally aware of him, but I will tell you the movie that that really made me pay attention and uh, gave me, uh, trem- I mean, I already had respect, but tremendous respect was actually something called Everything is Illuminated. It was uh, Leif Schreiber's. Oh, I remember that uh, film, yeah. I didn't and realize he shot that. He did, and it is visually striking, and it's a wonderful movie. We actually talk about it in the interview, so I'm not going to give anything else away, but yeah, we get do talk about Everything is Illuminated, and it is uh, still, it is currently on Hulu or Stars or something, and I I started rewatching it the other day. It's wonderful. So we'll we'll save the rest for your interview, but uh, yeah, awesome. And so Ilya, who do we need to thank for this episode? Oh man, let's thank uh, our producer Alana Cody. Yay, Alana Cody! Without whom we would not be uh, pushing out. We we did the math. We've put out more episodes in the last year than than all of the years before it combined. Correct? That's correct. And uh, we also need to thank our editor. So, so we're up to two episodes a year now. That's right. right. <laughs> so uh, we got to thank our editor, who is Ben Katz. <laughs> uh, we need to thank Kay Zalatrachi, who provided 100% of the music that you've just heard. That's right. You can find him at musicbykays.com. Go find him. Someone find him. You know, and, uh, just just find just it. Literally yeah. say anything to him. Just say, like, I heard your music on, on the Cinematography Podcast, 
and and you're a nice and you have good hair. Just, yeah, yeah. Oh, he does have good hair. He really does have quite it's a head of hair. Incredible. On. Uh, hey Ben, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, on Twitter is probably the easiest uh, at Neptune Salad. I'm also on Instagram at Benjamin underscore Rock because Neptune Salad was already taken, and I wasn't sure at the time if this Instagram thing was going to really be a thing. So I took a really shitty handle. Or you can do what Phil Garrett did on Facebook. Ooh, Phil Garrett. Phil Garrett, who's a visiting assistant professor uh, of film at Kenyon College in Ohio. Call him Professor Garrett. Professor Garrett. Um, what Professor Garrett did was he just messaged me on Facebook and he said, Hi, Ben. Just wanted to send a quick note. I happened across the cinematography podcast. Nice work. So Phil sending that thank you like that feeds my my shriveled little man ego. And I, I can't I can't thank you enough, Phil. And uh, it, yeah. it gets me out of bed in the morning. That yeah. actually is like that. It fuels us both. We we certainly don't do this podcast for the money. Definitely so. not. Because so, it costs us money. Because yeah, it, it has yet to yeah, but uh, but yeah, we we really uh, the fact that we're helping anyone learn anything means everything. So Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, just like the fancy British lady says at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras.com. I'm also on the Instagrams and stuff with my name. There's not too many Ilya Friedmans in the world, so good chance you'll find me. Go for it. Anyway, so thank you, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.